Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about heaven and hell in the afterlife. Some people say hell's an antiquated notion, you know, like a scare tactic, as if a God of love can possibly condemn people to die and burn in fire forever. At the same time, nobody raises a fuss about heaven. In fact, for every American who thinks they're going to hell, there are 120 who believe they're headed to heaven. Isn't that convenient? It's like there are these parallel tracks we all believe life runs on. When people live a bad life or they screw up royally, we say, oh, he's going on a highway to hell. He's going to hell in a handbasket. If they lead a good life, we say, no, heaven's her final destination. She's a saint. She's definitely going to heaven. But is it possible our concepts of both, of heaven and hell, are too small? My buddy's a golfer, and he said, I think heaven is like one long, continuous round of golf that goes on and on and never ends. And I thought, funny, that seems like hell to me. I mean, is heaven, little angels strumming their harps on fluffy white clouds, is that the best we can do? Is hell really full of flames? And and even if it is, is that God's epic plan to scare us into loving him? When it comes to the afterlife and eternity, I think most of us are at a crossroads. But I believe the truth about heaven and hell are even greater than we can imagine. All right, what's up, everybody? Good to see you guys. And I'll tell you, if these cards are any indication, uh, you guys got a bunch of questions about heaven, hell, and the life beyond this one. Uh, Last week, I invited you to uh, share your most burning questions uh, about heaven or hell. And honestly, the response is overwhelming. By the way, you're going to have to pardon my voice. I went uh, to Great Adventure with the Liquid staff on Tuesday, and I'll share my deep, dark secret. When I go on roller coasters, I scream like a schoolgirl. And I actually lost my voice for a couple days. So I'm like, God, help me here. We're going to talk about hell uh, and heaven. And some of these questions that honestly are real personal. Listen to this one. Someone said, will I be married in heaven? Um, Will we recognize family members and loved ones? What about children who don't know Jesus? Will they be there? Um, can people in the afterlife uh, see us in this world? This is a great question because they're like, well, if heaven's all joy, if so, won't they not be sad to see the state of things on earth? Um, with, this is kind of fun. A lot of pet questions. Will animals be in heaven? I love my pet lab and hope he's waiting for me. Uh, and I was like, well, that's an easy one to answer. I think we all know, you know, all dogs go to heaven. Cats, on the other hand. They go to the hot place. Woo, look out. All right, hey. Uh, Some of the questions actually about hell are profound. Listen to this. You mentioned Gandhi. What about the moral, amazingly good people like him who serve others? Where are they? Uh, My friend is a Jew who deeply loves God. Can he go to heaven? Um, Are we really to believe, this this is, you know, real honest. Are we to believe people in remote third world countries that never heard of Jesus are going to hell? A lot of questions that kind of what about You know, babies, you know, children too young to understand who God is. These are profound questions, some of them very personal. And what we're going to do is kind of hit them head on 
to see what the Bible says about what to expect in the hereafter. And uh, this is kind of a heavy topic. So I kind of want to begin with one of my favorite Far Side cartoons. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, the top shows a guy in the clouds uh, and an angel saying, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. The bottom, a guy in flames with the devil saying, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Uh, you know they play country music down there. You know, if you, if you like classical, it's probably Lady Gaga, right? It's kind of like whatever that is. But so much of our understanding about heaven and hell comes from popular culture. And, you know, like hell is patrolled by, you know, this, this guy in red tights with, you know, a pitchfork. And he's, he's playing ACDC music backwards, you know. And, and, and hell is nothing like that, according to Jesus. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but actually Satan doesn't reign in hell at all. Did you know that? According to scripture, Satan, death, and hell itself will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. And some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought hell was the lake of fire. Nope, hell will actually be destroyed. Now there's a thought. But if you're a believer, you've put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. You're like, well, that's not my destiny. And you think, well, of course, heaven is, right? And most Christians believe that they're going to instantly, when they die, go immediately you know, to, to heaven, which is this, this far off place in the sky, this ethereal place beyond the clouds where they live in this kind of disembodied state with God forever. And that's actually not accurate at all. Did you know that? The Bible actually talks about an intermediate heaven where our soul goes upon death to await the return of Christ to this earth and the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. And most people assume that heaven is, you know, we're, we're floating spirits in the by, sweet by and by forever and ever, but it's not the truth. Instead, God's plan is the restoration of all creation. Instead of actually destroying this world, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And once again, bring heaven down to us. And that's why on this earth, we're actually told to champion, you know, things of love, beauty, grace. We're, we're, we're to give our, our efforts to restore things and, and people who are broken because it's a sign of what's coming, a, a new heavens, a new earth. And so in this life, we see just glimpses or dim reflections of what our eternal home will one day be like. And so just to whet your appetite, I'm going to kind of hopefully broaden your view of what God has planned for those who love him. And just to appeal directly to scripture candidly for some truths that I think have maybe gotten obscured or kind of lost over the last, uh, you know, centuries of of belief. I'm not going to get to every one of these questions uh, today, obviously. So here's what I decided to do. I figured last week we talked about the reality of hell. So today I was like, let's tackle the questions related to that. And then next week you're in for a treat because I've been blown away in my study about heaven. It's just, I, I can't wait to show you some of the things I'm like, I never thought of heaven that way. Someone actually wrote, I'm worried heaven will be boring, like a never ending Chris Tomlin concert. Thank you for your honesty. Um, Again, there is a failure of imagination about what waits. I really think our boxes are way too small. And I can tell you, heaven will be anything but boring. You will never experience more adventure, more intimacy with others. We're actually going to rule and reign. You will actually have responsibilities. Not only will you meet Christ face to face, we'll actually live in the city. I hope you like, not you know, the suburbs. We're going to have urban living banquet with Christ, and, and that's next week. But today, I just want to help you think biblically about hell and the afterlife, because the truth is, all of this is a warm-up act. We get 75, maybe 80 years on this earth, and then eternity begins. And each of you is first and foremost a spiritual creature with a never-ending future in God's good universe. And, and, and what you believe about the life to come has profound implications for how you live in the present. So I picked four or five questions and just tried to unpack these logically. So to level set things, let's begin with this one. It says, someone wrote, I read a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. What happens 
the moment we die? And that's a great question because right now in our culture, there are a lot of accounts of like near-death experiences. Have you seen these? Um, And they're really basically five popular views about what happens the moment you die. Five options you should be familiar with as you talk with your friends and family. The first is naturalism. Um, Naturalists will tell you basically that you don't have a soul. All you are is just a body, your flesh and blood. So when you die, you cease to exist. There's no conscious like existence of any sort following death. And um, that just is not accurate according to scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul says to Christians, I love this, he says, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, you and I, as image bearers of God, we are two parts. We are a physical body, yeah, and a spiritual soul. And at death, our physical body, it ceases to function. It goes in the ground. It gets buried. But the Bible says our spiritual soul continues to live far beyond death. For believers in Jesus, to be absent from the physical body is to be present with the Lord in spirit, okay? So, so our soul is with God in spirit until the day it becomes rejoined with our body at the resurrection of the dead. So naturalism, which says, well, we're just flesh and blood creatures with no soul. It doesn't take into account the clear teaching that we are first and foremost spiritual beings. Now, a second option would be universalism, okay? Universalists would say that, well, actually, in the end, pretty much everybody gets to heaven. Hell will be empty or sparsely populated. And um, that's kind of been the controversy over Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. People say he's kind of flirting with universalism. And last week, we saw Jesus' clear teaching about this, that actually some people will choose hell voluntarily. The rich man in Jesus' story, he made a life of stepping over people, rejecting God, serving himself first, and that choice naturally continues into eternity. In John 14, Jesus said, he said, I am the way and the truth and what? The life. No one comes to the Father, let's say this together, except through me. And this is a startling claim. This is the kind of thing where people say, oh, you know, Christianity is so intolerant. It's like Jesus is kind of like, you know, just saying, all paths lead to God, I think. That's what a lot of people say today. They say, I think all religions, you know, I think, in fact, many, many, we worship the same God. He just has different names. You know, you, you say Christ, I say Buddha, he, she says Allah, whatever. But ultimately, everybody gets to heaven. That's not true. <laughs> Jesus died because he claimed the exact opposite, okay? So, like, you can say, I don't believe that, but don't say that's not, that's why Jesus literally was crucified, because he claimed that. Likewise, some universalists will um, suggest that there's a chance um, kind of for post-mortem salvation. So the idea here being after you die, you'll have a second chance to meet Jesus. He'll kind of, you know, melt your heart, and then you can go to heaven. And that's like, again, awesome idea, exciting idea. The problem is in Jesus' story in Luke 16 again. If you recall, right, Lazarus was in heaven, the rich man suffering in hell. And when the rich man suggests, hey, Lazarus, come and, and, and help me, Jesus actually says in the story, he says, between us and you, a what? A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the idea, guys, is that there are choices we make in this life about who we are. Are we good people or actually are we sinners saved by grace? We make choices about who is Jesus? Is he a good teacher or is he the savior of the world? And they have eternal consequences for the life to come. Every, everybody spends forever somewhere literally. Now, reincarnationists will tell you that we have multiple successive lives. And the idea here is that you die and return, die and return, and you basically keep coming back until you get it right, or you pay off your karmic debt to the gods. And, um, but that actually flies kind of, again, in the face of scripture that very clearly teaches 
man is destined to die. How many times? What's it say in Hebrews? Once and after that to face judgment. So, so again, just, I'm just trying to level set thing, okay? Because that's, people are like, well, that's the bad news. Everyone dies once and then comes judgment. But the good news is the second half of the verse, which says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear what? A second time, not to bear sin, but to what? Bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So in other words, we don't come back a second time, but Jesus does, okay? He paid our debt, so there's no need for us to kind of come back and try to pay them ourselves, which is a huge relief, okay? Just go, because karma's a mother, okay? (laughs) What goes around comes around, but grace says in Christ, I get precisely what I don't deserve, salvation. That's incredible, incredible, subversive thing that the gospel claims, now, the last two options you will hear about are really annihilationism and purgatory. And a bunch of you asked questions actually about, about each of these. And these are, I want to say, these are two perspectives that many Christians hold. They don't have a, a really a full basis in Scripture. But I do want to let you know, there are people who love Jesus. They can disagree about this and still, you know, enjoy heaven together. Annihilationism basically says when nonbelievers die, they're going to cease to exist. In other words, like a candle, it gets snuffed out when you die. You have it, your, your body and soul may suffer temporarily, but eventually they both cease to exist. Now, if you're Catholic, purgatory is one of the key doctrines of the church. And I got a bunch of these about purgatory. Somebody says, do we exist in limbo? What's the role of purgatory? Purgatory in, in the Ca- Roman Catholic Church is thought about as this kind of in-between holding pen for people who aren't quite good enough for heaven yet. They need to be purged or, or, or purified. That's where you get purgatory, purged. And the early Catholic Church taught that souls um, suffer in fire. That's the way they're purified. That's why if you take a tour of Roman Catholic cathedrals, you go to New York, you will see works of art very similar to this. These, um, these are people in purgatory. If you look at the faces peeking through the flames, you see the souls they are praying to Mary. They're begging the Holy Mother for mercy. This is, this is a carved scene from a cathedral in Germany. Look at this one. This depicts men and women who, again, they're not quite ready for heaven, but they're not quite bad enough for hell. And so they need the fire of purgatory to kind of punish their last remaining sins before they can pass on to heaven. So in the medieval mind, purgatory was basically like this, this, this really hot waiting room where it's like you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait for your name to be called. It's kind of like the division of motor vehicles, okay? It's, it's very similar uh, in a lot of ways. The, the problem with the concept of purgatory is actually kind of twofold because it doesn't actually appear in the Bible uh, Catholics would acknowledge that, um, but they would point to the Apocrypha. That's a group of about 15 writings that were added onto the canon of Scripture about 500 years ago. And this was the moment that indulgences were in, you know, introduced, where you make a financial gift to the church in order to move your loved one through purgatory more quickly. So the silence of the Bible was kind of trumped by the tradition of the Catholic Church with kind of a conflict of interest in between. The main issue with purgatory is, is the words of Jesus himself. You guys may remember this, famous last words. You always know somebody by the last words when they're dying. And when Christ hung on the cross between two thieves, one mocked him, said, save yourself. But the other one said, no, he's innocent. We're getting what we deserve. And they said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you remember what Jesus replied? He said, I tell you the truth. What's the word? Say it, church. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, not tomorrow, not the day after next week, not once you're scrubbed clean of all your sins. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, this thief 
didn't have a chance to do one good thing. He didn't have a chance to go to church, to be baptized, to receive Holy Communion. He didn't do penance for what he'd done. Instead, he just humbly confessed his need. He says, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. He's innocent. He's the Savior. And what was he promised? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So this is very good news if you were raised Catholic, okay? Because the assurance of salvation, a lot of, a lot of questions about that. Can we lose my salvation? Can I, can, can, I, can I be snatched out of God's hand? This takes the uncertainty out of the, equation, the, the, the equation, folks. You don't have to spend your life wondering, have I done enough good things? When I die, am I going up or down or somewhere in between? In Catholicism, candidly, you can never be sure how much unpaid sin you may have left in, to pay in the afterlife. Again, the Far Side comic, uh, I, I think that illustrates this uncertainty. If you're listening online, check a look at this comic. This is kind of fun. There's a guy standing before two doors in hell. One says, damned if you do. The other says, damned if you don't. And the devil's kind of poking him with a pitchfork saying, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. The good news is that Jesus says, no, today you're going to be with me in paradise. It's not purgatory. You're, n- you're not kind of hosed either way here. There is a tremendous freedom, guys, with the gospel. You have to get it. You get this. When you rely solely on Christ's sacrifice and, your own, and not your own good works, man, it is liberating. You live out of gratitude, not guilt. So those are like the five prevailing views in our current culture about what happens when you die. Naturalism, universalism, reincarnation, annihilation, and purgatory. But the biblical truth is much better and far worse than any of those, <laughs> which leads to question number two. Someone said, is hell real? Is it a literal place and in, in where did it come from? And the, and the quick answer, obviously, is yes, it's definitely real. In fact, if you were a Jew in the first century and someone said, go to hell, you'd know exactly where they were talking about. Uh, let me explain. In the Old Testament, uh, there are a couple of words, okay, that, that refer to death in the grave. And the most common one is the Hebrew word sheol. Can we say that together? Sheol. There you go. You know, it, it was a dark kind of murky realm of the dead. Psalm 18 says, the cords of sheol entangled me. And this kind of realm of the dead, it was not well-defined in Hebrew thought. It was kind of more vague and underworldly. But in the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, something changes. The actual world, hell, that it's used about a dozen times in the New Testament, almost exclusively by Jesus himself. And the word we translate in English as hell, it comes from the Greek word Gehenna. Can you say Gehenna? I have a Gehenna tattoo. Not really. Gehenna. Here's the deal. In Jesus's day, Gehenna was a place. It was literally the town garbage dump. It was the place outside the city gates of Jerusalem, okay? It is where people not only dumped their trash, they would pile all the dead bodies of criminals who were executed. Big trash pile, burning bodies, decaying fecal matter. It literally was on fire, okay? You could see it a mile off. So in the first century, if somebody said, hey, why don't you go to Gehenna? You'd be like, you mean right over there? They could smell it. And it was in this context of, of, of this incredibly place of decay and death and destruction and fire that Jesus gave this shocking teaching in, in Mark 9. Listen to what he said. He said this, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna where the fire never goes out. Then he goes, if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And then he really ups the and he goes, and if your eye causes you to sin, <laughs> pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye like a pirate than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna 
where the worm does not die and the what? The fire is not quenched. And here's the deal, guys. This was extraordinarily shocking teaching. Some of you are like, man, Jesus is hardcore here. He's really kind of, you know, turning up the heat a little bit. And you got that exactly right. Because Jews would have been like, wait a minute. Is hell a real place? Yes. It's as real as the town garbage dump. It's not something that's like just a little bit of flames. We're talking about your whole life up in flames. Hell in your heart. And it consumes you from the inside out. The worm never dies. It eats at you. And the fire is not quenched. And they would look at that and they were like, you mean like the landfill on Long Island? Yes. (laughs) Gehenna, that's what it was. Wait, so are they talking about, so was Jesus literal? No. Jesus was making a striking, it's even worse. He's making a striking spiritual kind of analogy to kind of wake people up. He's like, you know what a life without God is like? When, When people just grab things for themselves, they envy, they lust after each other without the spirit of God actually giving them new life from within. He's like, it's like that. It's hell. It's Gehenna. It's awful. A life that's on fire on the inside, this gnawing, burning life that's fit for one place outside the city gates where the worm never dies and fire isn't quenched. He's actually quoting from Isaiah 66 here. Now, what do these images conjure up? Because Jesus was trying to wake people up in the first century. He's intentionally using this extreme language. He's like, you could pluck out your eye, you can maim yourself rather than give in to, to sin. It's kind of over the top language, isn't it? Unless, of course, you're familiar with the kind of habits or or even sins that destroy people from within. Again, think a bigger thought than like literal fire and punishment. How about a life that's set on fire by addiction? All right? I mean, we all know somebody, or we know somebody who knows somebody who's addicted to something that they can't give up, but it's wrecking their life. Could be alcohol, could be pot, coke, sex, whatever, you name it. When you see somebody whose life is set on a certain course and what it eventually does to them, it's painful to watch, isn't it? For example, um, you take someone addicted to crystal meth. You guys know crystal meth, what that is? Okay, that's kind of like, that is becoming the fastest growing drug of choice in rural areas across America. It's actually um, super cheap. It's a mixture of cold remedies, methamphetamine. That's why you have to sign for like allergy pills at the, you know, the pharmacist. And you mix it with drain cleaner. And it's a very quick high and it's quickly addictive. And, And let me, this is the face of a meth addict after 18 months. That's before and after. This is before she started using and a year and a half later. Crystal meth literally attacks the skin, it rots the gums, and it actually damages the brain. That's the face of Gehenna. Why? Because the addict is oblivious to the effects. She's just in love with this one thing that's literally destroying her life. Meth moms will actually forget to feed their children. They will go on binges for weeks, not recognizing that they've left their infant kids fending for themselves in squalor. Again, folks, this is the face of hell. If you have ever been with an addict, you may see what's happening to him, but they can't. Look at that. That's the same person. The disintegration of the soul, the empty eyes, the kind of hollowed out, a life that is literally on its way to the trash heap. And you can reason with an addict, can't you? Don't you? This is destroying you, man. You got to cut it off, dude. Gouge out your eyes, cut off your head. I don't care. Do whatever it takes. The thing, this thing's going to kill you. Do addicts listen to reason? No. Because they're under the control of something else. I would actually say something demonic. 
something that will eventually destroy their body and soul in Gehenna. And again, I, I understand these are shocking images, okay? They call this the meth makeover. This is put forth by the, by the government to show what happens in a span of 12 to 16 months. An addict never has enough. The fire is never quenched. The worm never dies. That's Gehenna. That's hell, and that's hell. Now, let's just take a moment here, okay? Wow. This is heavy stuff, yeah? Because if you, you see it around you, someone asked that question. They said, do you think we experience hell and heaven in this life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You've seen it in front of you. But you got to understand something. In the first century, this is a tough truth, but there's good news behind all this. <laughs> because hell, as Jesus envisioned it, was actually seen by early Christians as a sign of great hope. You might be like, what hope is there in this? It's true. Track with me. Question number three someone asked is, the idea of judgment in hell makes God seem angry and violent. How is this loving or peaceful? And this by far, this is the number one objection, is it not, to the idea of hell? I mean, let's be honest. Let's talk about hell. You may be uncomfortable right now. You're like, man, this is like hardcore. This is not peaceful. (laughs) This is unsettling. And if you think that, I'm going to rattle your cage with what I'm about to say. If you think the idea of judgment in the afterlife is unloving, it's because you live a sheltered life. You do. It, on, honestly, the vast majority of believers around the world, the truth is this. The existence of divine justice is a source of tremendous comfort to them, not affliction. See, only Westerners, we, we have the audacity to question God's justice and say, I don't know, is that really fair? Because the objection goes like this. God's justice seems so extreme. I mean, it's telling people they're going to like live in flames and they're going to be tormented forever and ever. Is God bloodthirsty? I think that's what causes religious violence. That's what's wrong with you Christians. You know, the good ones, we're all going to heaven. The rest of you are going to hell in a handbasket. It creates this us-them mentality. That's the objection. Saints go to heaven, sinners go to hell, and I'm a sinner. How convenient. I don't like a God who lets people feel the fire, even if it's their choice. Really? What do you suggest as an alternative? See, we all intuitively know when a crime is committed, the human heart instinctively cries out for justice. It, 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 we saw this recently. Think about the death of Osama bin Laden. Did you notice the reaction of people when the news spread that bin Laden had been taken out? What happened? People poured out of hotels into Times Square. College students dancing in front of the White House celebrating. What was that? When you, did you ever ask that question? Like, like what was that thing? On, on the one hand, you may be like, oh, you know, disturbing patriotism. That's very disturbing. I think something significant's happened here. See, no matter how imperfectly, whatever your politics, everybody instinctively knew that justice had been done. A mass murderer who literally killed over 3,000 people and was plotting the death of thousands more finally got what he deserved, justice. My wife, Colleen, was... Um, she was actually in Midtown on 9-11 when the towers fell. And in the 10 years since, is fascinating, she had no desire whatsoever to visit Ground Zero. But the day after we got Bin Laden, she said, you know what, Tim? She said, I think I'd like to go to Ground Zero now. And I was like, why is that? I would suggest to you it's because for 10 years, there has been this like massive psychic wound in our nation's soul. It's like a rape. We were attacked with such hostility and brutality that no words could actually mend that. No time is going to heal that. Only justice. Again, not perfect, but this taste of justice, this sense that, you know what? In the end, the punishment's going to fit the crime. 
all will actually be made right at some point, and justice alone can bring peace to the human heart. Let me ask you this. I want you to think about this. Think about this. Would you really worship a God who doesn't get angry at child abuse? Who doesn't get furious with sex trafficking for minors? With rape? You turn to this month's news. Do, do, you, do you think Casey Anthony should go free? Have you been following that? She's the young mom accused of taking her two-year-old daughter, putting her in the trunk, and snapping her neck so she could go out and party? Or do you instinctively cry out for justice when you watch the news and you hear about seven-year-old girls sold into prostitution in India? How about genocide in Rwanda? Eh? Human trafficking? Let me say something. When people say they don't like the word sin, or I don't believe in hell, ask them, have you ever sat and talked with a parent whose child was molested repeatedly by someone they trust? How about tortured? Earlier this month in Syria, people took to the streets because they were outraged over the murder of a 13-year-old boy who was protesting the government. He was arrested by secret police, and then three weeks later, his broken body was delivered to his parents full of gunshot wounds, burn marks, and severed genitals. Your son. His parents uploaded pictures of their boy on YouTube, and it has set this nation on fire. Syria is on fire on the street. People are demanding blood for blood. Are you really naive and sheltered enough to say, well, I, you know, violence doesn't solve anything? Because that's a platitude we throw around in the West. That doesn't, that doesn't mean jack to the majority of the hurting world. People cry out for justice, guys. And the promise of eternal punishment for madmen is one of the only things that can offer lasting peace when unspeakable atrocities are committed in this world. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is actually writing to persecuted believers. These Christians were actually being slaughtered. If you said, I believe in Jesus, they'd hunt your family down, they would tie them to a cross, in the Colosseum and allow you to be mauled by wild beasts, your kids thrown to the lions. To those persecuted Christians, Paul wrote this. He said, do not repay evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And it'd be like, how could he say that? Watch. He says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for what? For God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul says, he just says, if your enemy is hungry, I tell you what, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing this, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. You think about this. Think about this. Don't be sloppy. Don't be mushy in your thinking. These Christians are being slaughtered. The emperor Nero literally would cover them in pitch, tie children to stakes, and light Christian boys and girls on fire to light up his garden parties. And Paul says, don't return evil for evil. Live at peace with him. Overcome evil with good. And he'd be like, how could he say that? Answer, the promise of divine judgment is the only way you can make sense of such an outrageous request. He says, you have to leave room for God's wrath. He's the judge. It is his to avenge. He will repay, says the Lord. And only if you believe, guys, 
in a God of love and a God of justice. Can you possibly consider choosing peace in this world over revenge when you are hit with atrocity in this life? For instance, when, when we hear the word genocide, let's be honest, we're in America, we're in New Jersey, we're here to live this privileged existence. We understand like genocide is like, okay, I think that's in the evil category, but you or I don't have the faintest idea of what ethnic cleansing is like. If, if you go to Africa or the Balkans, you talk to people who've seen their homes burned. They've seen their wives and their daughters killed and raped. How are you going to keep them from picking up the sword and being sucked into the vortex of revenge? How are you going to do that? Are you going to say, well, you know, violence doesn't solve anything. Not only will that platitude miss their heart, it shows no concern for justice. Anybody who has been wronged like this says justice must be done. And if there's no promise of ultimate justice beyond this life, you can't possibly resist the urge to take things into your own hands in this one. You will pick up the sword and you will get sucked right in. Only if you have a belief in cosmic justice that there is a God and one day he's going to put everything right. Everything we've seen, it will be put right. That doctrine of hell, it's mine to repay, says the Lord. It's essential for living in peace on earth. And if you don't believe that, it's because you've lived a sheltered life. You have not experienced what the majority of this world has. Amen? It's ironic, isn't it? A lot of sophisticated people, a lot of suburban people will actually try to downplay hell and judgment to make God seem more loving. And in doing so, they make him less. Only belief in eternal judgment can help people live in peace on this broken earth. I mean, look at the world around you. People have affairs People destroy families. People abuse children. What father wouldn't protect his children from pimps, pedophiles, or rapists? Yeah? Hell, hell is partly for our protection. Hell was actually created for the devil and his angels. Where do you believe perfect justice is going to come in this life? Please? Come on. Hell actually allows us to live at peace as we trust God for perfect justice in the life to come. And at the end of the day, guys, it is a matter of trust. I mean, do you trust that God can be perfectly loving and perfectly just and what he decides in the afterlife will be perfectly fitting? The, f- the final question that people ask are all the kind of what about excuses? You know, what about Gandhi? What about my friend who is, who's Jewish but loves God? What about those who've never heard of Jesus? And just a couple of quick thoughts on this just to close. First, the Bible is very clear um, that faith in Jesus Christ is the only 100% sure way to be certain you're saved. Acts 4.12 actually says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's what? Let's read this out loud together. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be what? Saved. What that means, guys, is there is no other religious teacher who died for our sins. There is no other religious leader who came to earth claiming to be God's only son. There's no other religious teacher who rose from the dead. Our final destination is not about being good. It's about Christ being God. We understand this? Because only Christ led a sinless life. So only he can make a sacrifice that clears away our sins, that actually diverts all the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. He took the fire on himself. He went to Gehenna for all of us. And if you confess that, that you may be good, but you're not God, then Christ says, come on in. I'm not only going to forgive you, I'm going to give you my righteousness. 
Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we become the righteousness of God. In other words, God looks at us and he sees Jesus's holy life on us. He literally looks at us and he says, I see my boy in him. Tim screwed up a million times, but I've forgiven Tim and I have now put the spirit of Christ in him. And I'm giving him the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. Jesus went to hell so you could have a home in heaven. Folks, this is about God's generosity. It is not him being stingy. The scandal of the gospel is not that people go to hell. It's that anybody actually makes it to heaven. John 3, 6 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for what? God's wrath remains on him. So the question at the end of the day is, are you trusting in God's son or are you trusting in your good works? I don't presume to know where Gandhi is, honestly. That, that's just speculation. We're going to go around the mulberry bush. We just go now. The, the only question that counts is, what did Gandhi do with Jesus? What did he do with Jesus? I, I don't know what your Jewish friend, what's in their heart, but he or she has a decision to make about Jesus. And so does every single one of us. Because God is perfectly loving and he is also perfectly just. And what that means is no matter what revelation God gives you, it will be adequate to understand salvation because that's God's desire for everybody. When people say, what about, you know, people who've never heard of Jesus? Rob Bell says in his book, he says, what if the missionary gets a flat tire? People in, you know, the remote third world. Scripture says that God has actually revealed himself to every single person on the face of the earth in one way or another. The example Paul gives is of nature itself. You guys know this. You go to the, the beach, you go on vacation, and you spend time in the Grand Canyon. It speaks of God's glory. Romans one twenty says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that what? Men are without excuse. In other words, nature screams that there is a God, that there is a creator. Not just nature, your own conscience. Your conscience. Where, why do you think, where, where do you actually think we get our sense of morality from? Why is it that every civilization believes that murder is wrong, taking someone's life is wrong, that incest crosses a line? Where does that come from? That is literally your conscience, your own in, it, God created you in a way that testifies to his moral code. That we all believe rapists, killers, they should be locked away. We're intolerant of them, Yeah. Where does that innate sense of justice come from? We all understand the need for justice, the need for a savior. God has given us his word, the Bible. It's been translated into every language of every people group, even remote tribes. God uses dreams and visions to reach people today, just as he did in the Bible. Don't discount God's creativity. Think a bigger thought. He spoke directly to Abraham. He gave dreams to Pharaoh. He knocked Paul down on his butt to introduce himself. Hi, I'm Jesus. He even spoke through a donkey. Still doing it. God is perfectly able to bypass normal cha channels, yeah? To get his message of salvation through. I will never forget visiting with uh, Lazarus Yegnazar. He's a missionary to the Muslim people in Iran. And he, and he described how the gospel is making these massive inroads right now in the Muslim world. And they were like, how, how is that possible? They don't have Bibles. He said, dreams and visions. He said, Tim, Jesus is considered a prophet in Islam. And over the last 10 years, he's appeared to hundreds and hundreds of Muslims in Baghdad and Tehran in dreams and visions. 
And Lazarus says, by the time we give them a Bible, they say, oh, thank you. Jesus came to me in a dream. Now I have the book that confirms what I already believe. Remember the Father's heart, folks. It's your Father's heart. Second Peter says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting what? Anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. God's heart, what's his heart? Can we be trusted? He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's the whole point. And Jesus died so everyone can go to heaven. Amen? When people ask about babies or, or unborn children, I say, do you believe you can trust the Father? Could you trust the Father? He gave up his one and only son. Can you trust him with your unborn child? There is no fear in love. If, 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 if you as an imperfect parent have mercy in a heart like that for your child. Do you not believe God the Father will? Remember, guys, God's ways, are they're not our ways. They're infinitely better than ours. We cannot understand everything God wills. We have a three-pound fallen brain. Humans trying to understand God is like an ant trying to understand the internet. What? You can't understand every situation, but you can trust his heart. You can trust his heart. Trust the Father. Trust his love. Trust his mercy. Heaven itself is greater than anything you can imagine. Next week, I'm going to play you a clip of a little boy whose story is told in the book called Heaven is for Real. Have you seen this book? A lot of people reading that this summer on the beach. His name is Colton. And long story short, he basically died in surgery when he was four years old when his appendix ruptured. And, um, but when he came back to life, he began telling his parents that he actually visited heaven. And at first they didn't believe him until he said to his mom, do I have a sister? And his mom, who years before had a miscarriage and never spoke of it, said, what? He said, mom, you had a baby die in your tummy, didn't you? It's a four-year-old boy. And the mother said, how did you know that? And he said, I met her in heaven. She's okay because God adopted her. And she can't wait to meet you, mommy. I'm supposed to tell you that. He's been all over the news. It's a New York Times bestseller, 19 weeks straight. I mean, I, and I'm like, I read this on the beach, and I was like, a little boy given a glimpse behind the curtain and meeting his mother's miscarried child. We can only imagine. <laughs> this is what we're going to get into next week. Heaven. How real is it? It is better than you or I can even dream It's when we finally come face to face with this God who is love, who suffered hell so you could come home. Come home to heaven. I'm going to end with God's question to you. Do do you trust the Father? Do, Do you, have you asked Christ for salvation? Because how you answer that, you know what? Only you can know in your heart it is the most important thing you can do in this life. You know, I know this was like hardcore today, man. It's like, hell, what the? <gasps> it's 90 degrees out and you're like, oh man, I get that. But maybe you've never settled that. Maybe you just have had questions. You've had doubts. Maybe you have approached this like religion. I'm making a philosophical investigation of the claims of God. But you've never just humbled your heart before Jesus actually spoke to him as your Lord and just asked Christ to be your Savior and say, wash my heart of its sins and just give me your spirit. I want to live for you. I want 
heaven to begin now in this earth. And I want that to continue on to eternity. I want to clear some space right now for you to do that, for you to talk to God. Okay, we're going to just take, have an honest moment here. You talk to God, you and him, and you can leave here today with a sense of assurance that no matter what you've done, Christ forgave it all. <laughs> he can give you a fresh start. He can give you a new spirit in your, in your life, but you do need to be honest with him. So let's just bow our heads. I want to give you a chance to talk with God. All our campuses, just take a moment here. Let's bow our heads. Just take a moment. Holy Spirit, just ask your presence right now, God. God, I thank you right now, Father, for your love. Just thank you for your love. We thank you for your justice, God, that we don't get what we deserve because of Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, for speaking so explicitly about hell and then actually going there so that we could gain heaven. Father, right now, there are people in this room who you are speaking to. You're inviting them to become children of God, to be born again into your family. God, right now, I ask that you would just speak to them, let them know that is your spirit. It's not guilt. It's your spirit drawing them to stand up and say, I, I want to receive new life. Lord, whatever... Um, Sin is out there. Whatever is blocking us, Lord, our objections to you right now, we just offer them right now before you to you just demolish those arguments, God, and give us a new heart right now in this room, Lord. Let's take a moment. We want to pray to you, Father, in our own words. If you've never made that fresh start with God you, and you don't have the words, it's really simple. It's really simple. You can just pray after me. You can just pray that out loud said, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your spirit. I confess that I'm not God. And so I ask you to fill me with yourself. Father, I pray right now at all of our campuses, people who are praying, Lord, who are receiving you, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believing in their heart that you raised him from the dead. Let them know they are saved. You welcome them. Surround them with your love right now, Jesus, I pray. Let them feel it in their soul. And we give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.